Welcome back to Lead, Travel, Pray. This is episode five, and today we're going to focus on leading change. So back with us is Michelle Strike and Sandy Schneider. This is Rebecca Ellis, and I'm going to help us moderate today's conversation. So we're going to talk about leading change, and really we like to talk about it mostly in a fairly generic context, not necessarily tied to organization change, but that is probably the basis of a lot of examples that we'll share according to what we see and experience daily in our lives. Um, We've also each of us been through a fair amount of personal change, and so you may hear some of those stories come into play as well. But the advice around leading change, we believe, can be used in really any industry, any type of market, um, whether you're leading a church, leading a nonprofit, leading a Fortune 500 company. Um, So uh, hang on tight here as we start to uh, discuss some of the ways we think people, employees, and leaders can help manage and get through change more successfully. So before we start, um, I mean, there's a lot of data that talks about how really poor we are at leading change. Uh, Michelle and Sandy, I'm sure you've come across some of the same articles that I have. It seems like every couple of years we reinforce those same data points, which are pretty negative around just how awful we are at change in an organization I think usually I see that we only succeed about 30 or 15% of the time on the far end. And that's really about ending a project on time, on budget, and getting the results that we want, which is usually meaning someone, a human, has had to change their behavior in order to get those results. What is it for you guys that kind of sticks out around maybe how hard it is to lead change or some of the data that's made you think this is a really important topic? One of the CEB data points, Rebecca, um, specifically focused on um, organizational change, estimates that in the United States, a typical organization incurs $107 million in wasted productivity costs due to failed changes. Now, what I think is interesting about that data point, one, it's shocking and it sort of demands attention. And what are we going to do based upon this information? But what's missing from this story that I'm curious about is what percentage of leaders who had responsibility around those changes would have identified them as failure? Or how many would say, it was fine, we got through the change, we executed the change, and potentially even some who might have suggested that their change was successful, even though there may have been lost productivity in the process. Yeah, so I think for me, the start of the change process um, often involves when the change gets kicked off. And um, as a psychologist working in organizations, we see that the process of just people generally accepting change can vary so drastically that I think that that's a lot of the reason for wasted time. You might have a CEO or C-suite team that's really bought into the change because they're the ones seeing probably the most data that shows the reason for the change. And then the trickle down of accepting that change and understanding it, it just takes a really long time. And I don't find that organizations allow for the length of time that that can take before trying to implement a project. And so Mm -hmm. if they really factored in that 
um, emotional processing time, seeking to understand time, I do think that they would be more successful because you'd have a later launch date for some of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if you look at any change curves on the internet or in any books, they always show that productivity goes down at the beginning of a change. And our goal in effective change leadership is to make that come up faster or not be as severe. Um, but it's funny how a lot of leaders start to react negatively initially when that starts to happen. And they want to, in a lot of cases, I think, cut bait and not go through that change because they're only expecting for some <laughs> odd reason only positive <laughs> things to happen. And if you look at a normal human, like the, this, you know, especially from a psychology perspective, what it takes for a human to get through change why wouldn't collectively that be the same thing, which is not positive from the beginning? Um, so, yeah, I've, I spend a lot of time trying to talk leaders out of aborting missions that we know are in the best interest of the organization, but will be painful for hopefully not that long period of time, but some period of time until we get to the point of, you know, what, what we expect to be um, the, the actual change happening. So. Good point. Good point. Speaking of that model, what are other models or tools that you all have used in your work to help people effectively lead change? I feel like John Cotter's uh, change model is one that uh, certainly we all learned about in graduate school and one that most other uh, change researchers certainly cite. Um, that model has, um, I believe, eight steps. Uh, creating a sense of urgency, creating a guiding coalition, creating a vision for the change, communicating that vision, removing obstacles, creating short-term wins, consolidating improvements, and anchoring change. And in practicality, that feels like a lot of unique steps that I think in practice can oftentimes be summarized in a more efficient way. And it's not that any of those steps, I think, in Cotter's model aren't appropriate or relevant, um, but I think can be intimidating for leaders as they're thinking about putting together their change plan. And then if you hand them this eight-step model with potentially words and phrases that they're unfamiliar with, that can cer certainly be intimidating. And I think you could achieve a similar outcome with a more simplified model that might simply be a focus on the vision for the project, a focus on actually leading the change and not just ticking off the tasks on the change management plan, um, building the culture for sustainability and communicating all through the process. Yeah, so That's I great. am most Michelle, familiar with Cotter's that? model as well. And um, I found that it to Sandy's point, is often overwhelming for um, people to think about, oh my gosh, at the beginning, I've got to go through all these eight things and they all probably take a long time. Um, so uh, later on, I think that we'll reference some resources. I found that the book uh, by Cotter, um, Our Iceberg is Melting, is a way to take this process and um, break it down into something that seems understandable. It's um, 
written from the perspective of a penguin who realizes that the iceberg that they're living on is melting and um, how he can get people on board with doing something so that they don't lose their home and how hard that is. And so there's a lot of humor. It's lighthearted. It's an easy read and there are online videos around it and everything. So I think whatever the model is, it's figuring out, yes, if those are the steps, those are the steps, but how do we make it more digestible? Yeah, that's a great point. I think in one of Cotter's more recent books, Accelerate, he does talk about that the steps are likely still very relevant, mm -hmm. but maybe not yeah. as linear as we might have been thinking about in the last couple of decades. And I think that's important for leaders also to know, because it seems like when there are things that are hard, like leading change, we like to really boilerplate it or make it a template, a check the box activity as simple as possible. And this is one of those things that you just can't really take the complexity out of. And so I think knowing that it's not linear, that it's not so simple, um, but to both of your points, like communication is so key. And I know we'll talk a bit more about that here today, but a lot of it's just getting out of your office and having the conversation and being in that two-way dialogue with people that will mostly shape mindsets differently and change behaviors. Um, and there's not like a mass email campaign that I've ever seen really change mm -hmm. people's behaviors and attitudes in the way that a conversation can. And so those are some of the simple reminders I think that are can be game changers. Um, there's a couple models that I do like to reference when talking with uh, folks about change. One is the SCARF model, and that's from David Rock and his neuroleadership and neuroscience research. And the SCARF is S-C-A-R-F, not the thing you put around your neck, although you might feel like needing to bundle up in some change. <laughs> it gets a little cold and, and uh, unsettling, like those comforts. Um, but it means about um, really helping employees have more status in the change, which often means they get a vote, right? They're kind of at the table helping decide. Um, it also means about uh, certainty, making things a little more known where we're headed. Um, uncertainty has a lot of negative complications to our mental state and our ability to kind of engage. The A stands for autonomy, so that sort of self-driven, not needing so much direction. R is relatedness, which means you've got someone to talk to who can relate, who understands. You've got this community around you going through something similar that's there for you. And then the F is fairness. Is this change fair to me? And if it's unfair, kind of all those social injustice pieces, then we're less likely to feel good about it. But even if you just focused on those things, um, oftentimes you can help people around you through the change easier. There's also an influencer model, and we'll talk a bit about that book, I think, here as we go on today as well. But the Vital Smarts folks who wrote Crucial Conversations also wrote a book called Influencer, and it has a model for how to help shape behaviors with some pretty direct feedback and guidance. And it, again, is about kind of those social networks that help people, setting the expectations, how we better measure the behaviors we want to see changed. And um, it basically tells the story that you've got to do a lot of things um, to get a person to shift over kind of that tipping point of a behavior change. And I know for me, even just thinking about lifestyle changes I'm trying to make 
Um, it takes a lot of things, a better peer network, an accountability buddy, a reward system I built in for myself. Like all of those things are necessary to get there. And I think org change is really no different in that way. Absolutely. You mentioned it a number of times, Rebecca. It is complex because it's human nature. Uh, part of it is managing our own reaction and perceptions of change. And then in a leadership role, helping to lead others who have wide variety of reactions to change through that process. And that certainly is complex. It's not all about you when it comes to the change. And I think that that's hard for leaders, especially if it's a change that they're struggling to buy into. Absolutely. So let's talk about leaders who do it well. If there were just one or two characteristics you could pinpoint of you know, effective change leadership, people have you seen who you've said, hey, these guys really have a knack for champion change. What would some of those characteristics be? Uh, Michelle, we'll start with you. So I think that um, some natural flexibility as opposed to being of a more rigid mindset. So thinking about things mm -hmm. as changing as opposed to being fixed and uh, remaining more static. So I think that there are um, people who are naturally inclined that way due to some personality traits. Um, another one is um, curiosity. Um, so I think curiosity to imagine how things can be. And I think that that goes along with the flexibility. So if I come from a um, adaptable, less fixed approach, I can have a little bit more curiosity around what's behind the change, how might other people respond, and I can get out of thinking about it again from my perspective and look at it from others. Sandy, what about you? So as I'm thinking about um, leaders who have done a really good job leading change or driving change initiatives, um, what comes to my mind is the face of passion. So having a leader who not only uh, agrees with, buys into, thinks this change is a good idea, but actually has a sincere, genuine enthusiasm and passion around whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish. And I think that that is the key to obtaining buy-in to successfully influencing, um, whether it's your peers or the organization that needs to buy into moving forward with this change. And certainly as you're communicating it to your team and helping large groups of people manage through the change. Yeah, I think you guys have all made really great points. Um, the couple of things that came to mind for me, super related to what you're talking about, um, have to do with a leader, um, really being able to authentically tell the story of why we're headed down this path. And in setting that vision, um, do it in a way that's inspirational and motivational, um, similar to what you've said. I feel like it's hard for leaders to be authentic, and I'm not sure. That's probably a whole nother topic of conversation for another day. But, um, you know, a lot of it sometimes I think comes down to the leaders themselves not knowing enough. If they weren't the ones who started the change, maybe they're a, you know, a director level person and they're trying to carry the CEO's message on and they haven't yet digested it for themselves. That's apparent. And it's like, how do you help leaders better take care of themselves so that they can take care of others in carrying on that message? Um, 
if it's their own change, then they, they should be able to tell it in a convicted way and, and feel very authentic about it. But a lot of times it just feels like a pass-through message that I don't know that people can get rallied around in the same way. The other thing, too, um, whether the leader him, him or herself has started the change or not, I don't know that um, people generally are that good at stakeholder management. And I think the people who are really game changers in this space and who can really you know, have that knack for champion change, they understand who else is impacted by what they're trying to do, and they better engage them and keep those people abreast of of what's going on. And so I don't know if it's about um, like more of a systems thinking or understanding outside of your own bubble or silo, but people who do that well, in my opinion, seem to do um, a lot better at change. I always come back to it, it's the leaders who um, recognize the value of the people who are involved in this change. Mm -hmm. So whether it's, to your point, point Rebecca, getting a stakeholder buy-in, um, simply acknowledging that there are other people in this world that this change is going to impact, mm -hmm. and I want to um, help them acknowledge the reality of what's going to happen and manage through it successfully. Um, do the leaders fully recognize the impact that it's going to have on people at all levels? And then uh, take the time to actually think through, how do I help these individuals um, manage through this process? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when leaders get wrapped up in kind of doing the change, what do you think we miss as our best strategies? Um, so we just talked about what makes it great. What is often the things that make change not go so well? And how can we fill those gaps? So the uh, big extroverted woo girl over here, um, <laughs> for me, what stands out is how often we overlook celebrating wins. Celebrating small wins is so important along this process. Change is complex. It oftentimes takes a very long time. And if we're thinking about taking a change from vision to anchoring in culture, I mean, that's multi, potentially multi-year stuff we're talking about. And so I think it's oftentimes easy to overlook stopping midway and recognizing how far we've come. What was the starting point and now we're at step five or we're six months in? Uh, what successes have we had? Have we taken the time to pause and feel really good about our accomplishments? As a leader, have I taken the time to stop and show appreciation and recognition for the key people on the team who have helped us get to the success that we're at today? We don't have to wait until three years later when we've got some historical data to look back on to say, oh, yeah, and today we can call this a success or right. not. Yeah, great point. Yeah, so Sandy, I appreciate your point because on my list there was nothing around celebrating. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so I'm glad that there are people who think that way and it's not me. <laughs> so um, probably the top thing on uh, my list for um, thinking about what gets overlooked is um, not pre-planning and understanding points of resistance. So imagining it from the beginning and thinking about if the change fails, what will have happened, kind of doing a little bit of that, um, what the research is calling pre-mortems, 
um, before mm. change is ever launched and being willing to um, prepare in advance responses to resistance. I was uh, with an organization a couple of weeks ago helping them work through a massive reorganization change with the top 200 leaders of the organization. And one of the things that we did with them was um, help them create a FAQ, Frequently Asked Question, document around what are some of their questions and working through the answers as a group and then also what questions and points of resistance do they anticipate from their individual team members so that they could really have a time and a space to think it through so that they're not caught off guard and um, feel like this is just it's normalizing it and um, so then I can handle it a little bit easier when it happens. Yeah that's a great point. I've had I've not heard of the idea of premortem, so I'm gonna have to look into that. That's that's a great idea though. Trying to plan for those things, <coughs> we do often write frequently ask questions and anticipate what a person might ask, but do we really anticipate the resistance as well as we could? So that's a good point. Yeah. The, and the, we know there's a lot of resistance out there, so absolutely. why not <coughs> spend some time on the front end anticipating some of that and addressing it. Yeah, it's totally human nature to be skeptical, right? And if we yeah. think about those stats around how much change has failed in organizations, we're jaded just by examples and past experiences. And so, of course, we're going to be, you know, curious why this would be different. Um, the main thing that comes to mind for me that's overlooked is, um, and maybe it's not overlooked so much as just our bias for action kind of gets in our way of taking time to to be more strategic but I feel like um, the speed that people want to start a change often ends up being the biggest barrier and then if we would just slow down and kind of get some of that leadership alignment and get some of those things um, sorted out so that we could move fast it would save us from being slowed down periodically throughout the project when it then feels like it's harder to regain the momentum or that the doubt then gets to weigh so heavily on things. So just that idea of slowing down to move fast, I think is one that is helpful to keep in mind. The other thing I was thinking about too is, you know, not all change is created equal. And I think too often we, um, we try and treat change the same regardless of what type of thing it is. And, um, Leaders need to be better at understanding when it's okay to just be directive uh, because it's a directed change and you don't need to have a crowdsourced solution because it's already pretty defined um, versus when it really is helpful to have a crowdsourced solution for both the buy-in and uh, really to get the best solution because one leader may not have it. And so knowing how to flex those muscles of what kind of change it is, what kind of involvement's important for success, I feel like we like, again, that checklist of everything's the same. I'm going to go through the same process I did last time and not consider some of those other variables. So another potential opportunity to, to do better. So moving to then culture, you know, when you look at the statistics around change, things like uh, culture change are usually the highest level of failure, um, followed by things like major systems changes, like an enterprise system, an ERP, and M&A. 
Um, so culture's even harder than some of those massive changes. What advice do you all have for a leader to help in culture change? Um, I think that one of the things that came to mind for me as I thought about um, going down the path of anticipating the resistance is making sure that a leader provides safe venues for people to discuss their struggles with change and to Sandy's point, successes along the way. Um, I think that without providing that venue, people um, have what what they refer to as water cooler talk, right? It just ends up being gossip and this downward spiral that's really negative. So anticipate that people will want to talk about it and process it and provide those venues and build that into the process. And proactively seek out the resistance if you're not hearing it. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not there. And so you should, as a leader, be asking for it. What are you buying into? What are you struggling with? And that that's not a one and done conversation. I love that, Michelle. I had written down communicate, communicate, communicate. Communicating, on, we've already talked about it, on the front end, anticipating resistance, uh, working on FAQs, uh, providing a safe forum for associates to ask questions and to raise points of concern along the way. I mean, that communication piece um, looks different uh, throughout the process. I think there's multiple different communication forms that can be used. The key is you can't stop it. You can't let it go because in the absence of information, people are going to fill in the gaps. And a lot of times they're filling in gaps with inaccurate information that may not be the most positive in nature that's going to drive towards a successful change. Um, the second thing I had noted around building the culture is um, thinking about the reward system. So thinking about from an organizational culture perspective, when the business is saying, okay, we need to, to shift uh, our focus a bit. So maybe instead of just driving towards productivity, we're now gonna be uh, focused on customer satisfaction as well. Well, thinking about how we're rewarding our associates. So if our compensation systems are still tied to sales, um, productivity metrics only, and there's no customer satisfaction metric associated with that, we're probably not going to anchor any change around the importance of customer satisfaction in the organization. So I think uh, making sure that in addition to um, implementing the processes and the programs to support the change is making sure that reward systems, whether that's actual compensation, uh, base pay, bonus structure, incentive opportunities are all aligned with where the organization wants to be. Mm -hmm. Great points. Great points. Yeah. You know, culture is a tough thing. It, I think in the simplest way, for me, it's the personality of the organization. And so if you want to change a personality, that's tough, right? And showing up differently collectively as an organization is really tough. And if the top leadership isn't modeling what that shift should look like, I think it would be hard for others to be motivated nor even know how I change my behavior, changing a personality. Usually it's not like a 180, right? It's just a little shift here. But if I am not seeing others do it, I don't know what it looks like or what's even expected of me. So the leader modeling, I guess, for me comes as the top kind of point. If you can't demonstrate and tell examples and 
be able to articulate what behavior you're focused on differently, it will be really hard for 10, 20, 100, 1,000, 30,000 people to know then how to, to show up differently too. Absolutely, Rebecca. I think that's certainly a great point. People are going to look to the leadership of that change um, as role models. And so I think that's a critical point. Um, as you were talking, I was also thinking about um, the selection aspect of this. So as you're thinking about making a, a, an organizational change and changing the culture of the organization, are we selecting right the right people coming into the organization for new roles? Um, are we selecting people who have mm-hmm. values that are aligned with where it is that we want to be, what we want our culture to be? Um, recently, I had responsibility, have currently, responsibility for uh, a, an organizational committee uh, focused on um, more uh, maintaining a positive culture versus culture change, but it's a fine line between the two. And what we found over mm-hmm. time was this group that had been in place for a number of years had lost their passion, had lost their perspective for understanding how the organization had evolved over the past uh, eight years and was no longer uh, aligned with where we needed the culture to be and where the organization was headed. At the end of the day, after a number of efforts around communication and helping people change perspective and get on board. What we found was that these individuals were no longer the right individuals for this committee. They had lost their enthusiasm. They had lost their passion. Uh, They were not personally in a a point of being able to manage through organizational change and how things in the world look different today Mm -hmm. than they did eight years ago. And ultimately, we needed to rotate those folks off the committee. And while that creates some pain in the moment, and for actually a couple moments, um, I think hindsight (laughs) shows that those individuals who rotated off, that was a valuable experience for them. They now see the world differently. They now um, have a new perspective as they're hearing their individual leaders explain future changes. I think they've got a different perspective. And at the same time, we're able to onboard Uh, new associates into the committee who do have passion, who do have enthusiasm, who don't have eight years of history that might be baggage that they're carrying around with them. They've got new ideas, fresh ideas, and are excited about what we can do. Mm -hmm. Great. That's a great reminder of how a change at an organization level is really just a collection of individual changes. And when you start to get stuck, um, sometimes it does take some kind of reinvigorating and retooling those groups or those individuals to kind of help spread and gain momentum there. So how do we then as individuals and even just personally in our own experiences, how do we get through change? What are some of the strategies that each of you have found to be helpful to cope with personal changes? So Rebecca, I'm happy to um, chime in here. So I think A big piece of it for me is in the beginning when I even contemplate whether or not I'm going to change and go through it is reminding myself that uh, usually it's better than I anticipate. Rarely do my worst case scenarios um, come to fruition. And so it's kind of normalizing that, oh, okay, yeah, when I did it before, it's not that bad. 
And um, one of the things that helps me do that is, um, especially during change, is to focus even more so on gratitude and um, really thinking about in the midst of pain, what am I still grateful for? And I think that that's where my faith helps me in this is recognizing that God does have a bigger plan and um, part of that involves change. He needs me to move from one place to the next. And so if I feel like he's called me to either continue in the change or start the change, then it's trusting that um, it will work out. Will it feel bumpy? Absolutely. Um, and it's reminding myself that it is bumpy and honestly to not ignore my feelings and to make sure that I'm feeling what I'm feeling and acknowledging that um, it's doing what we talked about in a podcast a couple of months ago around emotional intelligence, just being really aware and trying to regulate my own emotion. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Michelle. Sandy? Michelle, I, yeah, Michelle, I love that you um, continue to rely on God's plan, on his plan. Um, when I was thinking about Rebecca's question around what strategies do you personally use to cope with change, um, my instinct is to immediately go to a plan. How do I build a plan for getting on board with whatever this is, getting myself into um, an intellectual and emotional place of moving through this change, um, and then make it happen? And what I have found in my life is although my plans make me feel better because I'm like okay I can do this uh, the reality is if if my plan is not aligned with God's plan it's never the right plan mm -hmm. and so when I am faced with significant uh, change and oftentimes challenges associated with that um, the comfort comes from relying on God's plan and listening to the messages that I'm hearing, to paying attention to the cues around me. Um, and that certainly not only provides me with comfort in the process, uh, but seems to uh, result in much better uh, success rate on the back end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've both brought up really good points, which is I think our human nature is to want to be in a lot of control. And I think when you reach some level of awareness, understanding, acceptance that we are ultimately not in control. And certainly I think our faith tells us that's the case, right? We don't know the best answers and we just need to sometimes let go. Um, that often for me ends up being the best way to cope. I don't try and uh, rationalize why things are happening or what it is that I'm going to do next, but try and just be more kind of in the moment and and go with it. And I think we've talked on a previous podcast how all of us have made career choices, um, relocation choices, relationship choices, kind of based on some of those gut instincts and just really letting go of that decision and, and not trying to overthink it. So I do think that's the best advice that, that we can give collectively. Um, and you know, how, um, how little control we have is real, right, on so many fronts. Mm -hmm. And so the more you try and orchestrate things uh, to very specific 
degree, I think the more frustrating and more challenging things can be. So that point Michelle made earlier about agility, just being open to what could happen. I don't think any of us know or could design the best plans for ourselves in the next Mm-mm. month even, but certainly not the next year or the next decade. And so um, there's careers that haven't been invented yet that we'll probably be working in before this mm-hmm. earthly life ends, right? There are um, workplace opportunities that we can't even envision. And so therefore we can't be planning for and starting to figure out how we're going to be the most capable people in the room. And so the agility and just the patience and perspective, if nothing else is, is really important. Yeah. So um, Rebecca, I, I appreciate what you're saying and it makes me um, realize that one of the things from a practical standpoint that I really try to do is make sure that I am, um, really intentional about my social time and um, spending it with other people and not isolating during a change. It can be really easy to get caught up in all the stuff that you have to do because oftentimes it's extra stuff, whether that be a career change, you still have to do your current job and figure out what you're going to go to next or relocation or whatever it is. It can be really easy to isolate. But what we just talked about, and you guys have actually been a part of helping me not isolate and helping me work through multiple changes and we all have for each other. And so I think that's one of the things that I really value about our friendship and that it's good to to normalize it in here we're we've made it through change before we're going to do it again and maybe we'll have a career that isn't even invented yet it's like there's there's hope in that yeah absolutely absolutely so um what about others who struggle with resistance to change what have what have you seen as strategies to not just help ourselves but also help others clearly you can't accept a change for someone right or get through that change curve on their behalf, but what do you see working well with coworkers, peers, family members, etc.? Sandy, do you want to start us? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's acknowledging that people react differently to change and don't think that you know someone well enough to anticipate how they are going to react. Um, and so that requires, I think, um, listening Um, demonstrating empathy when someone is struggling um, and not passing judgment. Mm. Because I think as soon as we pass judgment, we express disappointment. What do you mean you're, you're not bought into this? What do you mean? I can't believe you're showing resistance to this. We're passing judgment. We're disappointed. Um, The relationship with that particular person is going to go downhill from there. So how do we enter um, the situation in a place of really being open to and caring about the people who are involved in the change, helping them through it, showing empathy, listening, um, and providing resources. And we've talked throughout the day about a variety of resources that can help. Nobody is expected, I think, to be the one person who's going to miraculously mm-hmm. help a thousand people move through this change. Um, but you can certainly help lead people to resources that might help them with their individual struggles. Sandy, I um, like what you said. Listening and empathy, I think, are um, top things that come to mind for me. 
building on that, I think that if I can in the situation, um, once I've listened and provided empathy, is also trying to provide perspective on navigating change, providing either my own personal example or in helping organizations. Again, um, I think that a lot of the reason that therapy works for people is because it normalizes a situation where you feel like, oh my gosh, other people think and feel this too. It's not just me. And that's what gets people to keep mm-hmm. going back. And so in, in, um, in our role in organizations, we're oftentimes that person that helps the other keep going. And one of the things that I have to realize and talk the other person through is that typically change happens because we are in such a pain point that we have no choice but to change. We don't typically change just because. Mm-hmm. Rarely do we wake up and just say, you know what, I'm just going to totally change careers and move today. And um, it oftentimes is from an impetus of pain. I would say the rare exception is Rebecca, who um, decides on a whim to decorate her house or remodel her house differently. And so I appreciate that. I do not have any of that in And me. here I thought it was going to be about how I cut, woke up one Saturday and cut my bangs recently. Um, just decided to make <laughs> bangs. Too. Why not? I mean, yes. I am sometimes irrationally uh, quick to make major changes um but yeah um no judgment yeah. there right yeah. so yeah totally um, no I don't judgment. Know. it's yeah. a judgment free zone i get it i don't know if you guys have ever used the change style um indicator but it it's an assessment to help identify individuals um change style preferences and uh it's a, a three-point essentially sliding scale with conservers on one side originators on the other and pragmatists in the middle and uh, Rebecca, I don't know what your score would be on that assessment, <laughs> but I'm guessing that you're more on the originator side than yes. maybe Michelle and I, who might be more on the conserver side. Yeah. Um, but the whole point is, it doesn't matter what your personal change style preference is. You have the ability to successfully manage and lead change. Um, however, the key is understanding where you're at and where others on the team might be. Um, so that you can help tailor your messages and um, structure your change management uh, process to really get everybody on board, aligned, and moving in the same direction. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I was thinking of another model that's less about an assessment, but the William Bridges Transitions model talks about how people have endings and this neutral zone and then beginnings, and it labels some of the factors or characteristics you might see of a person in those various phases and what you can do um, to help them. And a lot of times it's just, you know, I think it was Michelle's point, honoring sort of where they are and recognizing it and being able to sort of verbalize and talk about that and not pushing a person um, to get there too quickly. But if you start to see them sliding back, maybe making a notice of, hey, you know, you were... I, I think you were feeling pretty confident about this last Tuesday. Kind of what's changed between now and then and Friday um, to make you feel less confident? And what what can I do maybe as a leader um, to help with that? And uh, just, again, reinforcing how they were successful at a previous change that was very similar or how you see them um, really playing a, a big role in that. Um, so, yeah, that's another model we can share in our episode notes that that will be helpful. 
Um, so our next uh, conversation is really around tools. And we've tried hard, I think, in this conversation not to go too far into change management tools and uh, really talk about it as a more tool-centric, but rather a behavior or a leadership mindset-centric um, opportunity. But are there some things that you think are maybe helpful just to keep in mind, tools you've seen or models that we haven't already talked about that might be helpful to people who want to build their capability in this area? So I frequently recommend Simon Sinek's TED Talk. Um, if you Google the golden circle or start with why, you'll find it. And um, then if it resonates for people, I recommend his book. I think that um, oftentimes we can get caught up in change and focus on what it needs to change. And we don't really um, take time sometimes to think through the why and make sure that we're articulating it. And he does a phenomenal job of um, showing why that's important. Mm-hmm. He's super talented. Lots of great messages. I also enjoy following him on LinkedIn. A lot of just really short, uh, good, good points and reminders. Uh, yeah, so, you know, there are so many out there. There's actually quite a few good podcasts on change that I like to listen to. So we'll add that into the episode notes as well. Um, tons of really good books. Um, one of my favorites to recommend to folks is the Chip and Dan Heath book called Switch. And it talks about a writer and an elephant. That's kind of the parable that it tells. Um, so that's definitely one. There's really a lot of, of good books that Cotter's written, um, often uh, really interesting articles published by Daryl Connor and others. So we'll add some of those links out to the episode notes for anyone who wants to uh, dig in deeper and learn a little bit more about this topic. So, so on a side yeah. note, it sounds like maybe we should all read Switch since we've all ridden Elephants. <laughs> that's true in fact i maybe need to dig up our girls trip elephant riding picture oh yeah i have um, them (laughs) awesome we'll make sure we add those to the episode notes too you guys our our listening community uh, if you don't know us well we have a heck of a time on our adventures together so you never know it could be riding elephants it could be finding interesting tiki bars to hang out at, um, all of the above. Michelle or Sandy and I were recently at a belly dancing place. That was interesting. Sandy's gotten a massage with BioFreeze. I mean, we have so many stories. We do. We do have some good ones. Yes, we do. So, To wrap us up here, um, change is inevitable. It's happening faster in, I think, almost every industry um, to the earlier conversation about we don't even know what occupations will be around a decade from now. Products are changing. Go-to-market strategies are changing. Um, Really, there's just so much coming at us at this moment. Um, even with, around hobbies, um, you know, I was talking with a friend yesterday. And it's like, I used to be into scrapbooking, but gosh, I don't even hardly print things anymore. But now I'm arranging things more digitally. Um, you know, just things like a camera have evolved so differently. So how do you guys stay on top of trends? Um, what do you suggest to people to try and best predict changes that will impact you personally or professionally? Any tips there? 
find a Rebecca. <laughs> That's my best advice. I don't know. Find a Rebecca. Um, so, so in seriousness, I would say that um, staying up on trends is probably not something that I'm really known for. But what I do is try to think through from a technology standpoint, what do I need? Kind of challenge what I currently have. So, for example, I have a, a smartphone, I have a tablet, and I have a laptop. And so I thought about, I need a new laptop. Should I go out and buy a new laptop or can I do what I need to do differently? And so it's really just kind of pushing on the boundaries of what am I doing today? Do I really need that? And if I don't, what else could I use? How else could I embrace um, technology or other ways of doing what I do today simply because I have the tools? Yeah, Michelle, that's an interesting point. Um we've been talking a lot about things going digital in our industry. And a friend was recently telling me about a conference that she attended. And the guy said, um, who in this room needs a, a, a wash machine? Who in this room feels like they really need to own a wash machine? And everyone raised their hands like, well, obviously I need a washing machine. I have laundry to do. And he said, no, really all you need is clean clothes. So does it take a washing machine or are there other ways to get that done? And, you know, it was just a start of like, yeah, we, we don't maybe understand how things could evolve around, you know, who, I think millennials as an example are less likely now to own cars, right? There's more card ride services, car sharing services, um, you know, biking to work, et cetera, things becoming more of a norm. And just how those things shape the way we think. But um, for me professionally, I think honestly, Twitter is a way that I am staying most on top of trends related to learning and leadership development. Um, LinkedIn is where I see a lot of cool things being expressed around change and change leadership. Um, and then I, I still kind of like the old school conferences, you know, around just the professional topic that I'm interested in. One of my team members just went to a conference, came back with a whole new technology platform change that's happening around learning that I was not even at all aware of. So I think trying to put yourself in the conversation where whether it's a digital conversation or virtual or a live one is really important. I went to a thing recently here called Disrupt HR. And those are happening all over the world and it's kind of provocative, uh, quick pitches on things that we need to be doing different. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. Reading, listening, podcasts, um, Twitter, just following some of those thought leaders is helpful. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us for Episode 5. We hope you're enjoying the Lead Travel Play podcast. And don't forget to check out our website at leadtravelpray.com. Also, we are still in the middle of our 100 days, 100 travel tips. So be sure to check that out online as well. And you can also check us on Twitter at Lead Travel Pray. Thank you so much. Hope you have a great day.